Our reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and that can be found on page 1188 of your Bibles. One Thessalonians chapter four, beginning at verse thirteen. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you for reading that, Rachel. Do please keep a one Thessalonians floor open. Um, I'm, I'm a couple of years behind with call midwife, um, but um, my wife isn't. And she reliably informs me that uh, last week, um, Tom's wife, Barbara, Tom is one of the ministers, apparently I call him wife, and uh, she died. And the taster at the end of the episode was, um, was that this week was going to be really tragic and sort of difficult. Um, and, uh, and Kate hasn't seen it yet. Probably many of us here who are kind of following through haven't seen it yet, um, uh, this week's episode. But um, uh, Kate's been getting messages from her friends uh, saying that they'd watched it before going on the school run and they were really sort of disappointed they'd done that because they were in tears at the school gate and stuff. So it was very moving. Uh, indeed, indeed. It was good of the BBC to time their programming according to our preaching schedule at Christchurch. Um, but ser- seriously, this is a, a really um, major topic that Paul talks about here. And it's a, it's a topic that will be personal for many of us. I remember uh, years ago now, um, uh, my nine and Tide, those are my Welsh grandparents. Uh, nine is my grandmother, Tide is my grandfather. Uh, nine was on her deathbed, um, and Tide was just all over the place um, because of it. He refused, or, or he was unable even, to accept the facts being given him by the doctors. Uh, he was absolutely convinced that she would be healed. Uh, he was from a particular background where that happened a lot. Um, I remember having a conversation with him about that, where he was totally convinced she was going to walk away. Uh, she died that night, and it left my tide absolutely devastated. Uh, God had let him down. Um, tide thought that maybe he'd done something wrong that, that had led to that result, and he was really depressed. He couldn't go out. It was awful for him. In my first two years here, uh, I was the minister for seniors. I was doing Rob's job, uh, not quite as well as he is now. And um, there was a lovely elderly couple who were just fantastic at ministry and had been doing stuff for years. And sadly, the wife in this couple 
died. And afterwards, the husband was absolutely distraught. I remember visiting him. Uh, He'd spent decades with his wife. And he told me that he didn't know what to do with himself now that he would never see her again. Now, both these couples have been Christians and going to church and reading their Bibles for decades. 1 Thessalonians is a book about encouragement, as Rachel uh, prayed earlier. But some problems in life just feel insurmountable. And we can't possibly imagine being encouraged when faced with them. One of those, so obviously, is death of a loved one. Uh, like in those examples that we started with. And I'm aware that talking about death will feel very raw and immediate to some of us here. Uh, in these verses, we, we see Paul's pastoral heart his desire to encourage the Thessalonian Christians in the face of the death of loved ones. And Paul was a much um, wiser guy than I am, and he was a much more gifted pastor. Um, so if I do say something clumsily, um, or didn't quite anticipate how it may come over in the next few minutes, do please bear with me in that. Um, I'm also aware, though, that death, um, while it feels raw and immediate to some of us, will actually feel very distant um, and irrelevant to some other of us at the same time. Now, Paul is addressing the topic of death uh, because it was a particular point of discouragement for the Christians in Thessalonica. And so here, here we have an example of how Paul encourages people at their particular point of need uh, when things are hard. And in that way, it's an example that is relevant to all of us because all of us have a particular point of need. It may not be death right now but we can learn something from the way he goes about speaking to them. Paul gives the Thessalonians two things to know and one thing to do. Two things to know and one thing to do. The the first thing to know is is really where we're going to major on, and most of our time will be spent on that. And that's this. The first thing to know is that beliefs affect feelings. Beliefs affect feelings. Please look again at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now Paul cares about the Thessalonians. He cares about how they feel, therefore. And how they feel about death is affected by what they believe about death. Paul doesn't say he wants the Thessalonians to stop grieving altogether. Uh, Remember that when Jesus stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus, Jesus wept, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Death is an awful thing. Uh, It is unnatural. Okay, we weren't created to die. We die because sin entered the world. And it causes a separation between us and those that we love who have died. So it's only natural, and it's right that we grieve and mourn uh, when uh, people die. But Paul thinks that what Christians believe about that will affect how we grieve. To have no hope at all in the face of death could lead to all sorts of different um, symptoms and results. Here's two examples. Uh, It might lead to completely paralyzing grief, where one is just overcome with feeling. I've sat with a lady uh, who felt that way. She saw no hope in the face of death, and she, she just felt like life couldn't go on. It took her a long time to recover from that. Or perversely, grief with no hope can harden itself 
by dismissing our feelings and their importance altogether. And I've known someone who refused to accept that someone had died, just completely put everything out of their mind uh, so that they, they didn't feel anything because they had no hope about the death they were facing. Paul doesn't want Christians either to be paralyzed by our feelings or completely dismiss them or, or any other um, symptom of feeling like we have no hope. And Paul doesn't try and generate encouragement in this situation from some kind of vague sentimentality. He doesn't recommend self-discipline or or routine that you should try. He doesn't recommend a course in meditation or mindfulness or say that you should take up a new sport to help you through this problem. All of these are things I've heard recommended for grief. Um, But notice they're all subjective attempts to help me respond in my grief. They don't offer anything to do with the objective reality of the thing that I'm grieving about, whatever our, our views on them as responses. Yet, as human beings, we long to have some objective grounds for hope. We long for something more than just dealing with our own responses. I used to work in a church just south of Cambridge, and we would put on events in the local school uh, to make it easy for people to get to know the message of Jesus and advertise them. Despite lots of inviting, um, we would often get very low numbers uh, to these invitations. And then one day, a psychic medium uh, came to the village. He claimed to be able to contact spirits of the dead people you had known and, uh, and to be able to speak to them and get messages from them from beyond the grave. Now, I don't want to sound judgmental, but he was a con artist, in my view. Using the power of suggestion, a bit of psychology, and uh, a lot of nous about people and how they work, he could make people really feel like he was able to do what he claimed, and joining some dots and come out with what seemed like amazing details. He packed out this school hall we used to invite people to in one day with paying customers with people who are desperate and longing to have, in the face of death, an objective reason for hope and to hear something from someone they'd lost. It was tragic. It was extremely sad. But all those people instinctively recognized that beliefs affect feelings. They felt a certain way about the people they'd lost And they wanted objective grounds to believe something concrete that would change the way they felt about that loss. All of us here have some feelings in some area of our our lives that we would like to change. It could be a feeling of grief about the death of a loved one, as as in here. It could be a feeling of sadness that you're not uh, good at your job. It could be a feeling of loneliness that you don't have any friends. It could be a whole bunch of different things where you have a feeling about something. Now, there are things you can do to change your response to these situations, and there's an appropriate place for that, isn't there? So um, running helps me a lot with sadness and depression. Someone joked uh, a couple of weeks ago they could tell how much exercise I was doing by how much I smiled. Um, I have a friend who follows a clear routine each day And uh, that does genuinely help her mitigate her struggle with loneliness that she has. There's also inappropriate ways that we can change our response to these situations. We won't go into 
Um, more detail on that, though. But can you see what Paul says here? It's not those things are bad, but that what we believe to be true is also an important factor that affects how we feel. Do I believe that my loved one is dead forever and there is now nothing more to be said about it? That will drastically amplify what my grief looks like in my life if I believe that. Do I believe that the job I do was completely chosen by me, that the circumstances of my life that brought me to this point were either entirely random or completely under my control, that the abilities and skills I currently have are entirely down to my genetics and the choices I made in life? Well, if so, that will drastically amplify the sadness I may feel if I'm not as good at my job as I thought I might be compared to to knowing that there's someone who called me into the job I currently have and placed me there. Do I believe that other human beings I meet are the the only relationships I have? And there is no higher power connecting me to to other people. It's just the interactions I have with them, and that's the sum of everything in terms of my relationships. If I'm that materialistic and functional in the way I think about relationships, it will amplify my feelings of loneliness, won't it? Beliefs affect feelings. They affect them in different ways. depends on what the beliefs are. Look at the belief that that Paul points to in verse 14, please, if you would. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. If someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are united to him by his spirit. Paul describes them as being with Christ, um, and in Christ, and of Christ being in them as well. Now, we don't have time to explore that idea It is mysterious, Um, but the, the point Paul's making here about it is simply this, that because we're united to Jesus, those people who've trusted in Jesus, whose bodies are no longer living, will return with him. They can't do anything else because they're one with him. So if Jesus returns, they must do because they're united to him. And so we as Christians necessarily believe But when Christians die, it's more like sleeping, as the New Testament so often describes. Because we will wake up one day and be with Jesus and all the other Christians forever. Paul's point is that it's not just an afterthought that's tacked on to the gospel. This is essential. It is at the center of our faith that we're united to Jesus. And therefore it's at the core of our faith that we will be risen with him from the dead. What do you believe about death? And how does it affect the way that you feel in the face of it? Now, I have the great privilege of working um, with Hannah Sturken uh, in the, the youth team. And, um, and she said something very wise to me this week. She said, Pete, don't forget um, to, to think about uh, people who who die that we know, who aren't Christians. Because these words can actually be difficult for them to hear. That's really pastorally very wise and helpful of her, isn't it? So do you think her afterwards? Now, Paul's not directly addressing that issue. He's talking about people who die in Christ, uh, who are known to die in Christ. And I do have to say up front, be completely straightforward And say that outside of Christ, the New Testament's very clear, there is no hope after death. 
That's clearly implied by verse 13, isn't it? We don't grieve like those who have no hope. But there are three things, however, that it might be helpful to note in passing that the Bible says in totality about this. First, we never really know what's going on inside someone. Um, We don't know what's going on in other people's hearts. My brother is not a Christian. He doesn't claim to be a Christian. He lives a life that's completely incompatible with being a Christian. But if he died tonight, I couldn't tell you for sure that he hadn't put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He might have done. Secondly, God is the one who judges, and he cares more about my brother than I do or can. Jesus has done more for my brother than I ever will. God gave his only son to die so that my brother could be saved. Now, I have three sons myself, and I've been really wrestling with this over the last few days. But I have to say that even though I love my brother, I wouldn't give any of my sons to die for him. That's what I realized. I just realized that's too much love, even for my brother. And so as I thought about that, I realized, you know what? God loves my brother more than I do, or more than I can. Isn't that astounding? More than I ever will. So actually, I'm really glad that it's up to God what happens to my brother. I really am. And that it's not up to me, because God's perfect and I'm not. He loves more than I do. He's more merciful than I am, and he's fairer and kinder than I am. So it's really reassuring, actually, that judgment sits with God alone. And those two beliefs should affect how I feel as much as the beliefs Paul talks about here. Um, I will grieve if my brother died, uh, and I would grieve differently for him than I would do for Katie, my wife, if she died, because she's clearly a Christian. Um, But I'm not going to despair when grieving over my brother, even though he doesn't claim to be a Christian, because of these things, which I know to be true. I don't really know what's in his heart. And God is the only judge, and he's a much nicer bloke than I am as well. Thirdly, though, I try and tell people about Jesus as much as I can and as clearly as I can because of that. Two years ago, my brother was told he had a month to live. Um, So I dropped everything. And John and Rachel Bruins really kindly lent me their car. I drove up to Liverpool and I spent hours with him, with a Bible, explaining the gospel, thinking this might be the last conversation I had. He lived on a couple of years after that. Um, But I'd do it again if I had got the same news tomorrow. Just a little aside, just thinking in passing about people who die, who don't profess to be Christians. hope those three things are helpful. We don't know what's going on inside. God is the judge and he's nicer than we are. And what we should do in response is try and tell people about the gospel as clearly as we can, whenever we can. As I say, it's not directly what Paul's talking about, um, but uh, it may be relevant to some of us uh, this evening. Beliefs affect feelings. That was the first thing to know. Beliefs affect feelings. There's one more thing to know and one thing to do, and as I said, these are much, much shorter. Second thing to know is this. Truly encouraging beliefs come from God's word. Truly encouraging beliefs come from God's word. Everything Paul says now is is prefaced by verse 15. According to the Lord's word, he says. Now, Paul was a prophet. He was an apostle. He had amazing visions of God in heaven and of the future. 
Uh, He very rarely talks about those things, though. In verses uh, 15 to 17, they're all about the end of time. And even though Paul could say a lot about this subject from revelation and from prophecy that he'd received from God, he chooses not to. Instead, he uses the scriptures that God has already written down to encourage the Thessalonians, the stories of Jesus and what he said. And actually, that was such an example to me in itself um, as I was reading that. I've struggled with uh, depression my whole life. In my late teens, I sought solace from prophets at big events that I used to go to. In my early 20s, I sought solace from literature that I used to read, great works. Um, uh, In my late 20s, I sought solace from books on psychology, pop books on psychology, because I wasn't quite clever enough to read the deep stuff. And now in my 30s, it's Google. That's where I seek solace from. I just Google stuff, okay? Some guilty faces around the room like, yeah, yeah. But whatever your view on those kind of various things, and they're not all bad, they're not all good. Paul had incre- incredible private insights, visions, prophecies, an amazing education, uh, incredible knowledge he built up, incredible wisdom and experience of people. And yet when he wants to encourage other people, look at what he says, according to the Lord's word. He uses the Bible to do it. Now Paul doesn't go on to give much detail about the end of time in what he says here. Matt's going to handle all those hot potatoes next week, and I'm sure he'll answer every question you have about that topic. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he won't. That's really horrible. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't write that joke down, so I shouldn't have made it. Um, all Paul does here is demonstrate that Christians who die before Jesus comes are not somehow disadvantaged in some way. The Christians in Thessalonica were probably tempted to think that Christ was about to return any second and that Christians who died before he came were going to lose out on something important. See how Paul contradicts that idea. Uh, Look at verse 15, please, if you would. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Christians who have already died won't be missing any of the action on the last day. Uh, Verse 16 For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These are all images of being called to final judgment. And Christians who have died, who are united to Christ, will rise before anyone else and enjoy Jesus declaring them to be his people, along with those Christians who are already living. Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that there won't be any kind of awkward waiting around for those who've died. Like they'll see the kind of living Christians sort of affirmed and then they'll be kind of waiting in some place kind of going, well, I don't know, am I in or am I out? It will all happen at the same time. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's probably kind of the weirdest little bit of of these verses. Here's what I think uh, they mean. We who are left alive at the last judgment, Paul's saying, whoever, whoever the we are at the time, and Christians who died before the last judgment will participate together in everything because we were united together in Jesus. And that's the significance of meeting him in the air. So it's not that some of us will meet him in heaven and then others will meet him on the earth. It's not that some of us will meet him on the earth and we'll have missed out on everything that's going on in between. He, say, he, put, he puts the point in between heaven and earth and says, we'll meet him in the air, 
So we all meet at the same time. No one misses out on everything. It, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of halfway. Now, I could be wrong. That's, that's my understanding of that. Yeah, I could be wrong on it. Um, and if you think I'm wrong, do, do let John talk well now afterwards. <laughs> Two things to know. Beliefs affect feelings. And truly encouraging beliefs come from God's word. Beliefs affect feelings. And truly encouraging beliefs come from God's word. Finally, there is one thing to do. That's in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our feelings about death or our feelings about any difficulty could be amplified or exaggerated because we're simply uninformed about what the Bible says. That that seems to be what Paul's addressing in verse 13 when he says we do not want you to be uninformed. Very simple problem. But simply being informed of what God's word says uh, that is relevant to a particular topic doesn't seem to be enough. And that's what verse 18 implies, I think. Because by simply writing to the Thessalonians, Paul has already informed them of what he said. If the Thessalonians didn't know before that there is hope for Christians who die, that God will bring with Christ those who have already fallen asleep, that they'll be no worse off than Christians who are living when Jesus returns, if they didn't know these things before, then they know them now, because Paul's just told them. Because these things are in Paul's letter, and the Thessalonians are reading it. Um, So why does Paul tell them to encourage each other with these words in verse 18? Because for beliefs to really take root and affect how we feel, we need to reinforce them for one another. It's not just about being informed, it's about then using those beliefs in the community together. And they might be beliefs about the resurrection of Christians for those who've died. It might be beliefs about God being in charge um, and uh, calling us and placing us in wherever we are in life, in the job we're in or whatever. It might be beliefs about Jesus being our closest friend and living in our hearts and us being united to all Christians by the Spirit, so our church is our family um, in the face of loneliness. It might be beliefs about God's character and the fact that we can trust him as the only judge to deal with those difficult things that we find hard. Just hearing these things and believing them in our minds to be true is not quite enough to actually transform how we feel. At least it's not for me. We need the body of Christ, the church. We need other Christians. We need to be telling each other these beliefs and helping one another to grasp the hold of them all the time, and particularly when we need to hear that thing or the other thing. That way, as we encourage each other in community with these words, the beliefs that we draw from God's word will transform our feelings in an encouraging way. I think of Tide, my wife's grandfather again, and, and that elderly Christian man from Christchurch that we spoke of at the beginning. Both of them were lovely, lovely Christian men, and their wives were lovely, lovely Christian women. And both of them had lost their spouses after decades of marriage, both of whom were overcome with grief, seeing no hope in that moment. And at those crucial moments for both of them, they were both given these very words from 1 Thessalonians 4, written 
by hand on a card. And both of them replied by saying essentially the same thing in different words. Thank you. I've always believed this, but I didn't believe it. By being given these words in this way, I suddenly feel now they are real. And they're now affecting me in a way they hadn't done before. They were informed, but they also needed to be encouraged. That's what Paul asks the Thessalonians and us to do. I'm going to ask us just to to be silent for just under a minute or so. I want us to think about a Christian that you know who is facing discouragement. Please pray for them and maybe in just in the quiet of your heart, ask God to direct your attention to something from Scripture that might encourage them in some way. Take a moment. And then after that, encourage, uh, pray that God will give you an opportunity to use that Scripture to encourage that person. So here's a moment. A minute of silence. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word contains encouraging truths in it. And we pray for these individuals that we have been thinking and praying about. Please bring to our minds something wise, something helpful, something encouraging from your word. And please give us an opportunity to share it with that individual in an appropriate way to encourage them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.